welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We are going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. And when, when you go verse by verse through the Bible, you don't get to cherry pick the talks. Sometimes you dive into it really deep and it messes with you. And last week was on love, marriage, and divorce. And um, it really messed with me because I realized that the talk last week wasn't about what I thought it was. I love this, by the way. As a teacher of the scriptures, I come to it with expectations a lot of time, times, but what I've learned is when you come to it honestly, open, ready to learn what it says, it might take you in a different direction. And that's what happened last week. And that's what happened this week. So we're, we're gonna j- dive into what I, I think could be one of the most important sermons for our generation. Not what I'm saying, but Jesus. <laughs> I, I believe this particular message and the implications for our day and age, in our cultural moment, this is it. Okay, so I'm gonna pray that the Holy Spirit will give you revelation, because I know I'm, I'm struggling with this sermon in particular, but I, I believe the Holy Spirit will give you revelation if you want it. And what do I mean by revelation? Wisdom to understand the scriptures through divine revelation, okay? Not because I communicated great, but the great communicator opens up your mind, your eyes, your heart, your ears to hear and see. Are you with me? All right, so open up your hands, close your eyes. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Thank you, Jesus, for the things you're doing in and through our community, but we thank you for who you are from the beginning of time, set apart. We thank you that your word is true. And we ask now that you would bring truth to our mind, our hearts and emotions, our feelings, our bodies, our spirit. Give us revelation to anchor into your scriptures and live under its authority, no matter the cost. So free us from the cultural worldview and deformation we've brought in here and give us revelation of your biblical eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, who wrote the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, says uh, mature disciples look like this from the Sermon on the Mount. Check this out. Number one, they love to obey scripture. So I want you to look at this list and ask yourself, how am I doing? Mature disciples love to obey scripture. Zealously banish resentments and anger. Fight off lust to protect people's value and honor. Live with integrity in their marriages and homes. Speak and live in truth. Their yes is yes and their no is no. Are undefensive, poised, and creative in loving in difficult situations and love and pray for their enemies. Today, we are going to talk about how to speak and live in truth. This is the subject that I believe is the most important for this this time in this generation, and we'll see why in just a moment. The great sociologist Charles Taylor said, we've moved from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity where it's all about being your truest self and don't let anyone tell you what to do. We are living in what I call the truth crisis. Postmodernity, the culture that we live in, postmodernism, gave birth to no absolutes. There's no absolute truth according to this philosophy that we are all swimming in. Truth is now subjective. The individual is now the authority and relativity, relativity, excuse me, has led to a life of vagueness, diminished discernment, and your personal experiences are the center of reality. 2016, the Oxford Dictionary named post-truth their word for the year, post-truth, which is defined as this, to, to or denoting the circumstances in which the objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Lee McIntyre, who wrote the book called Post-Truth, says it's easy to have a misconception about what post-truth means. And to say that we live in a post-truth era doesn't mean that truth doesn't matter anymore or that no one cares about truth. It means that we live in an era where truth is at risk, where we're in danger of losing sight of what truth is. And how did we get here? How did we get to this place as a culture and society. 
And the thing is, what's hard for us to understand is we are all um, byproducts or swimming in the culture of this philosophy that has been around for the last 100 plus years, but it took off in the 60s. And his uh, work, Philip Reef, in his book in 1966 called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, he said that the death of God in the West had given birth to a new civilization devoted to liberating the individual to seek his own pleasures and to manage and managing emergent anxieties. Religious man, which was before the therapeutic man, who lived according to belief and transcendent principles that ordered human life around communal purposes had given way to psychological men. Now pay attention to this who believed that there was no transcendent order and that life's purpose was to find one's way, his own way, experimentally. Man no longer understood himself to be a pilgrim on a meaningful journey with others, but as a tourist who traveled through life according to his own self-designed itinerary with personal happiness, his ultimate goal. George Barna, I'm just setting the, the framework for why we need this scripture today. George Barna and um, Barna Group, they examined the Generation Z, which is the generation after the millennials, about 70 million kids and teenagers born from 1999 to 2015. And they are the least Christian generation, the most racially, religiously, and sexually diverse generation in the history of the United States. Gen Z, according to their research, is the most confused about moral and spiritual truth. They are the relativism generation. 34% of Gen Z agree that lying is morally wrong. Only 34% of Gen Z believe lying is morally wrong. Compared to 42% of millennials, 50% of Gen X, 54% of boomers, and 61% of the elder generation. So what you see, it's called the elders, what you see is this massive moral decline as each generation passes off its faith, its traditions, its ethics and morality to the next generation. And so the next generation growing up is living in a place where only where 66%, did I do the math right? Believe that lying is okay. 24% of Gen Z agrees that what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. So only about a quarter of the generation Z believes that there are things that are moral truths that should stay for the rest of history. 75% believe it's gonna change, moral truths will change, spiritual truths will change as time and society goes on. This is the culture and society that we're swimming in. This is what the next generation looks like. In other words, there is a war on truth. And I believe as followers of Jesus, this is perhaps one of the greatest crises we face. So the question is how, then, do we confront a world which bombards us in every direction, everywhere we look with a counter-cultural belief than the gospel. I think the answer is found in the Sermon on the Mount, that this teaching from Jesus is perhaps one of the most influential teachings that we need to embrace as disciples in the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bible, go to Matthew chapter five. I know that's a long introduction, but I want you to see the weight that I feel as both a father raising up children, but as a father of this community who sees a crisis within the church, within the garden church. Because if we make statements that are absolute or statements based on scripture, 60 something percent of you don't care because it doesn't feel right with your personal experience or your ideological idol. We live in a moment where our ideologies, politically, left or right, have become idols that influence the way we see the world. Rather than scripture influencing how we see the world, we allow our political bias to influence our decisions about everything. And so for me, it's not about making you more conservative or making you more liberal. It's about making you more biblical. More like Jesus. But there's a certain way that we interpret scripture that makes sense. Because we do have people on the right saying they're just like Jesus and they're not. And we have people on the left who are also saying they're just like Jesus in their freedom of the the oppressors, and they're also wrong. 
And we have to find a way to meet in the middle under the scripture's authority, under the divine revelation of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to navigate this crisis we're in. How? Well, Jesus gives us some quick, helpful ideas. So it comes from Matthew chapter five. Let's read this Bible together. Matthew five. Um, For those of you that were here last week, you know where we're picking up. Um, Verse 33. Again. How many times are you gonna make me feel bad about being at at the beach on 4th of July, Darren? Just a couple more times. (laughs) All right, uh, I'm just filtering so many comments right now. Um, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. So he's quoting Deuteronomy. This is how Jesus does his rabbinic teaching. He quotes the Old Testament and then he reinterprets its definition, the heart of the message. And he says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Word of the Lord. So, let's dive into this text. First of all, Jesus is quoting an Old Testament scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21. So this is what he says. In the Old Testament, Moses wrote this command, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. So what I wanna give you today is at the heart of the Old Testament commands, at the heart of the Old Testament ethic was telling the truth. How we are to interact with one another, with our neighbors, is directly connected to honesty and integrity according to the Old Testament. From the beginning, honesty was the assumption for human interactions. Without that, without that assumption, trust breaks down culture into chaos. And so Jesus confronts an issue that emerged from the religious folks during his day. And the whole point, which we've learned over the last several weeks, is that the religious folks tried to avoid breaking the command by adding other rules to the commands, right? So there were 613 Old Testament commands found in the Bible. The Pharisees added another 1,500 oral traditions that they had to follow in order to prevent breaking the law. So things like, hey, remember the Sabbath, became 39 categories of what work looks like on the Sabbath. Rather than entering into rest from the heart of God, man made for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for man. Sabbath made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We made Sabbath about restrictions of work and now following a list of rules to prevent you from breaking the commands. And that's the same with this particular command in Deuteronomy. So what happened is the Israelites knew that making an oath to the Lord would put them in risk, in jeopardy of breaking the Torah, the Old Testament. And they would be, there would be all sorts of issues with breaking the commands of God. So rather than profaning the name by breaking an oath, they developed substitutionary words that they could swear by that wouldn't be considered breaking the Torah because it wasn't taking the Lord's name in vain. They were using things like Jerusalem. I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by the throne or heaven. I swear by earth or my head. They use words that were exaggerated in order to, uh, to increase the likelihood of somebody believing them at the same time in order to prevent breaking the law. Today it would be like yes, no, or maybe. Right? Like in our culture and society, we, don't, we might exaggerate and swear. We might, we might swear, I swear I'll be there, but what we, we don't even do that, we just say maybe. Right? In our cultural context, we say, hey, let's, or we say, yes, let's hang out. And then last minute, we cancel because something else came up. Anyone else struggle with this? Anyone, do we want to talk about the issue? I, you're all getting really quiet. 
I believe the word is FOMO, um, fear of missing out. And I'll just make this a blanket statement. You can hashtag this later. Um, if you struggle with FOMO, you, are, you have yet to become emotionally mature disciple of Jesus. Because saying yes or saying no is not going to offend a disciple in the kingdom who will honor your yes and your no. Even if the no means you don't participate in the things that you really want them to come to, and, they, and even if you say no, but you really want to go, the no is better than maybe. Because no is honoring limitations. No is honoring your limits, embracing the yeses of your life that God has already invited you to say yes to. And it takes a no to get there. Do you see, this is so much deeper than just some language we use to manipulate, to impress, to, um, to get people to believe our word because our word by itself isn't valuable anymore. You see, this is what Jesus is after. Jesus is saying, look, oaths, or let me just back up. The words that, that were used at the time of Jesus were used to impress others with their sincerity and reliability in order to gain acceptance of what they were saying, in order to get what they wanted out of those people. So O's were taken to validate claims or promises that might, under other circumstances due to the lack of credibility, might not make sense to that person they're talking to. They were forms of manipulation and they're calling on various external agents to validate one's promise. You see, Jesus says, disciples don't need to do this. They don't need to claim external words to validate the word of a disciple. A disciple's yes is yes. A disciple's no is no, and there's nothing in between. Yes and no are enough, and this is the key to becoming a person of integrity. What you say, you actually mean. And what you mean, you actually say. There's no subtext. There's no passive aggression. There's no saying something to please someone. Because anything beyond yes and no is an attempt to control, manipulate, or create a false impression, which, Jesus says, comes from the evil one. We don't get the luxury as disciples in the kingdom to live out half-truths, to live by alternative facts, exaggerations, or other forms of manipulation through our words. We don't get to manage impressions, whether online or in person. We don't get to exaggerate or have convenient omissions without explanation. We don't get to share white lies. We are invited to live as righteous and holy people with a holiness and righteousness above the Pharisees. We are to live truth, period. Nothing more and nothing less. We are to speak truth, think truth, give truth, share truth, live in truth, around truth. If we don't know what truth is, we don't speak it. If we don't know if this is in fact true, we don't spread it. We don't gossip. We don't say, hey, I'm really concerned about so-and-so, and that so-and-so's not here, thinking spiritual language. That is pornography in the church. This is a quote from a scholar at, our, at the school I went to at Vanguard. He said that gossip in the church is pornography. It is the, it is the destruction of a community. In our church, yes and no and nothing in between. No exaggeration, no helpful omissions, no need to control the impressions of others. We simply are because we are enough in Jesus and we have been immersed in the real thing so we can spot a fake a mile away. We'll get to how do we live out truth in a second. But brothers and sisters, I need you to hear this. If we don't know it's true, we don't share it, speak it, Post it, tweet it, TikTok it, Instagram it, Snapchat, Facebook it. That stuff has to stop in the church. The misinformation, the lies that are being spread because we're trying to save the world through Facebook has to stop. If anything we learned over COVID is that embodied togetherness is what matters most. 
You can get content anywhere through podcasts, God bless that technology, through live stream and YouTube. But being together as the people of God, incarnated word, laying hands, praying for each other, worshiping together, that's where life changes. Meals in homes, that's where life changes. You're not gonna change the world through really cool memes and posts. You're not gonna change, you're not gonna have deep change. You can change elections that way. It's fact. That's, that's a fact according to the Senate hear, commission hearing that happened in 2018. But we know otherwise because we are people of truth. We know how to live out truth. Anything else is catastrophic to the people of God. It is so severe. Do you hear the sincerity of my voice? One of you. Let me just read one passage that's super light. Tell me how severe this was. Now, this is a New Testament story. This is not Old Testament. I want you to just meditate on this scripture for a little bit. Acts chapter five, one of my favorite stories for church. Ready for this? New Testament church. Let's be like the New Testament. We want to be a New Testament church. We're planning church. We're going to be like Acts. Really? Have you read Acts? You see what happened to Paul? That guy got stoned to death, got up, and went back to the city that stoned him. You want to be a New Testament preacher? Chapter, one, or chapter five, let's read this one together. If we could, it would be great. I'm just gonna read it. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, put it at the apostles' feet. Just before this, at the end of chapter four, a guy named Barnabas put some money that he owned, a field, he sold it, and put it at the apostles' feet. So he, this, this couple clearly saw what Barnabas did and what was noted by him in that community, and they decided to do something similar, except they, they said that they got all this money, but they actually got some extra money and hid some of it. Now, then Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. <laughs> welcome, guys. Welcome to church. If you haven't been to church in quite some time, I want to welcome you to the garden. This is the New Testament here. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, we'll call them ushers, and wrapped up his body and carried him out to bury him. Could you imagine that? Like, there's, there's a rug. Uh, what do we do, Peter? Um, let's just bury him. All right, we're gonna have the ushers come forward. They're gonna pass the buckets and we're gonna take communion and then we're gonna bury the dead guy. Um, it's, this is from the New Testament. This is crazy stuff. After about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. This is a setup. <laughs> Peter asked her, hey, tell me the price that Anna, you and Ananias got for the land. She's like, uh, uh, is this the price? She's like, yes, that is the price. And Peter said, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down dead. Then the young men carried her out, finding her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear, yes, seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Would that terrify you? Yeah. Yes, thank you, front row. <laughs> this isn't about giving. This has nothing to do about giving in the church. This has everything to do, about, uh, this has everything to do with honesty. The church cannot be a place that says one thing and does another. That word is hypocrisy. The church is the center, the temple of the living God, who, by the way, in the New Testament is also called truth. You cannot be people who say one thing and do another in the church. This is where real, absolute truth exists. His name is Jesus. And he fills you with his spirit. And the disciples in this place, they, this is a moment where the, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. And one of the greatest arguments against those who want to say that there's only one God and it's not a Trinity. This is one of the greatest arguments against uh, Mormonism and Islam and any other cult in Christianity because it's here that they say you lied to the Holy Spirit. 
Are you with me, church? Now you see how serious this is. We cannot be a place that says one thing and does another. We are called to live and speak in truth. Let me just give you a couple of passages just to really drive this point home, and then I'll give you some practical steps on how to become a person who lives and speaks truth. Are you with me? Truth is such a big deal. Look at what John, the gospel writer, uses to describe Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to read, I don't know, a couple of these passages. Check this out. John chapter 1, you can go to your phones or your Bible if you have them and highlight them. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John 4, 23, yeah, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. John chapter 8, one of my favorites. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Not your good feelings will set you free. Not that yoga practice or that diet will set you free. Not that physical therapy, not just psychology, not just marriage and family therapy will set you free. Truth will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus literally says, he is truth. I'm not even done. We're not even, John 16, If you love me, keep my commands. How do we know you love Jesus? You you keep his commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you be and uh, and be with you forever. Here's his title, the advocate, the spirit of truth. John 16 to 12, I have so much more to say to you. I have so much more to say to you, Jesus says, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. I thought you'd play along, but you didn't. (laughs) It's cool. I forgive you. Let's try it one more time. John 17, 14, he says, I have given them your word, and the word has hated them. And the world has hated them. I have given you, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. One thing that's promised disciples of Jesus is that the world will hate us and hard times are coming and we will be persecuted. If you don't have opposition in the world, you're living your life wrong in the kingdom. Our job is not to be culturally relevant. Our job is not to get in with culture. Our job is to live out the way of Jesus and that might challenge where the culture's going. The world has hated them for they are not of the world anymore. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Listen to his prayer. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth is a big deal. There is an absolute truth. His name is Jesus. And in a world of post-truth, look at what N.T. Wright says. He says, the Christian gospel offers a deeper approach to truth than the world is able to provide. In a world where it is suggested that truth itself is an illusion, where truth itself seems like a broken signpost leading us around in self-defeating circles, the followers of Jesus ought to respond to that proclaim, the absence of truth itself is a lie. There is such a thing as truth. Even if it's more elusive and strange than we sometimes imagine, what's more is that the truth that will set us free, free to live as new creations and free to become truth tellers in our own right. The world is desperate for meaning and purpose and the church has the market. (laughs) We have truth. The problem is we aren't living in it. We're just like the world. We're living like everyone else. Our words are meaningless and have no power because our yes is not yes and our no is not no. And that's where it begins. That's where it begins. It's it's so profound that it actually just begins with the simplicity of your words being true. 
in every conversation, in every email, in every tweet or Instagram, what you give out is true. Whole, pure, honorable, noteworthy, life-giving, joyful. Think about that for a moment. Just do a little self-audit. How are you doing this week? Share any small lies? Did you exaggerate a story? Like I caught a fish. I don't really fish. That doesn't work here. Last week, there were about 100 people here. That's, that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> I struggle with this. I'm a storyteller, if you haven't noticed. I struggle with this. I struggle with the limitations of my word. Right? I want to make everyone happy. So I want everyone to hang out. And then I get burnt out and resentful and angry and then I bicker with my wife and blame her for my lack of self-control and my inability to recognize boundaries, stuff like that. <laughs> I know someone actually, sorry, that, that just was a, a monologue I wasn't intending for you. Truth is a really big deal. So I want to give you some steps that I've been processing all week. How, how do we build a life in truth, right? So the question I have is, how do we become mature disciples who live and speak in truth? So stay with me. We're going to do one at a time. Look at Joshua chapter 1. This passage you should memorize. In fact, Dallas Willard, who we love at this church, he died a few years ago. He's been instrumental in my understanding of the kingdom of God what discipleship looks like, spiritual formation, and scriptures. And he says the number one practice, the most important practice of a disciple is to meditate and memorize scripture. Joshua 1, he says, go back. uh, We'll read this passage. Joshua 1 says, this is a command to Joshua who's going into the promised land after Moses. It says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. This, you, you should memorize this passage because it helps you understand how in our culture of relativity, post-truth, modernity, where authority is the self, how to come under authority of Scripture. And that's a whole other point. But meditating, point number one is how do we live in truth? Well, meditate and memorize Scripture. The word in Hebrew for meditate, Eugene Peterson does a great translation of it. It's a very complex word to translate, meditate. The best framing of of the word is what a dog does with a bone. A dog gnaws on a bone. That word, gnaws on a bone, that phrase is the Hebrew word for meditate on Scripture. So you are to chew up the Scriptures. It's not some like, ah, like meditate, like being distant from reality. It's it's eating and chewing and running, allowing that, that, that bone to be in your mouth like a dog over and over again as you're walking about your everyday ordinary life. Let that word penetrate your mind. Let it create new uh, neural pa- pathways in your brain so that as things come up, as, as things from the right and things from the left, as things from the right and things from the left get you off course, you, you meditate on the scriptures and allow the scriptures to direct your path that you can spot the imitation. I don't know if you know the story of how early on they would train um, bank tellers to spot imitation money. Do you know the story? They, they, they just gave them actual money and they let them feel and spend all this time with real money so that the moment an imitation touched their fingers, they knew it was fake because they were immersed in the real thing. One of my friends and mentors who has lots of kids, I was asking about parenting and parenting boys and parenting girls, and I was like, were you afraid like, of your girls growing up and these guys dating them and all this? Like, what was it? He's like, oh, no, no, I had no fear. I'm like, why? Because they never knew what um, imitation looked like. They always knew what the real thing looked like. And so I trained them to look for the real, team, real thing. And he said, I'll never forget this. My, my daughter was 16. She was dating a guy in our college group at the time, or a high school group, sorry. And, um, and I was asking, yeah, that would have been 
red flag. But uh, <laughs> I asked her, I'm like, what are you thinking about him? And her response was, well, I'm just going to hang out with him for a while to see if God answers his prayers. Because if God doesn't answer his prayers, I know that he's not the man I want to be with. Because I, I know, Dad, that God has answered your prayers. Come on, for parenting advice. I was like, man, if you have daughters, how about that? What's the quality you're looking for in a man? Well, my daughter knows that if his prayers are answered by God, that's a good enough quality for them. The point is this. We have to immerse ourselves in truth. And how do we do that? Through meditating and reading scripture for formation, not for information. I mean, the idea of like one verse at a time for a couple of minutes a day versus the amount of formation we take on when we read the news, when we scroll through Instagram, when we watch YouTube videos or watch Netflix, Disney Plus, all the things that we now have access to. It is like the golden age of television, yet we can never find anything to watch. Anyone else struggle with that? It's like nothing good's on. The point is this, we have to have counter-formational practices that are forming us in the way of Jesus, forming us in the truth and the spirit of truth that help us see the fake as we move outside the world. Meditate and memorize scripture. Number two, probably the most active thing you need to do is uproot the lies and plant the truth. Now, I had this idea Monday of this week, and then I got to experience what uprooting lies look like in my garden at home. Okay, so just stay with me for a second. When I thought about this, I was thinking, okay, there's all these lies we had about our identity. I'm thinking like, oh, pull up the strawberry plant. Oh, it's dead, okay. You know, pull up, you gotta prune the tomato plant. Pull it up, we can just pull out the roots. Anyone know what I'm talking about? How easy that is? You just, you just rip it up, right? And then plant some good seeds, get the truth back in. So I'm thinking about lies about insecurity. Lies about sexuality, lies about identity, lies about your comfort and, and convenience, about your purpose, lies about your finances, lies about your time. There's all sorts of lies the world tells us. We don't see them as lies. We just partake in them because everyone else is doing it. The current's going this way. We're just swimming along with the cultural current at the moment. But lies are not that easy. This week, uh, I'll say we as a family agreed upon something <laughs> to Dig out the roots of dead bamboo. Has anyone tried to dig out the roots of dead? I want to see how many hands have partaken in such an excruciating thing. All right, let me just show you what this looks like. Here's a picture. This is the root system of a dead bamboo. Can you go to the next one real quick? Okay, stay right there. So there's about... 20-something bamboo that we chopped. This is a root system that's underneath the ground, about two feet, okay? Now, I, um, my wife started the project. Oh, God bless her heart. And then I had to finish the, the project. And um, you have to dig like two feet down, but you can't just dig because the bamboo, you could plant it here, right? And you get all these beautiful sprouts, you know, give you some, some privacy from neighbors if that's what you're going for. Um, they were planted before we got this house. So they just start here. But what you'll notice, the, the beauty of bamboos is that they'll go anywhere in the soil. So you can plant there and all of a sudden your house is right here and you're getting, you're getting this bamboo root right here coming out, this thing. I kid you not, they are, they are like cancer in the, 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 the plant kingdom. And and these, these root systems are deep and they're connected. So when you dig, I had to dig with the shovel, lift it up, and take a machete. I actually used my seven-year-old machete. Uh, my, my, my son's seven. He has, he has a, a machete that one of our friends thought would be nice to give to him. It's this big for his seventh birthday. I kid you not. And as he gave him this machete, he said, I know you like Star Wars, Ezra, so here you go. Because they have machetes in Star Wars. But anyways, that's beyond the point. Thank you for that gift. So I'm lifting it with a shovel and hacking it, okay, and sawing with the saw on the other side. It took hours, and it was brutal, and I had to rip it. I broke two shovels. True story. I borrowed a neighbor's shovel, go to, and I broke that shovel as well. I had to go to Home Depot, get two more shovels to finish the job. That's what it's like to uproot the lies that are planted in you since your childhood. It's not this innocent little, let me pull out some strawberry sprouts to get a new garden. It is taking a machete to the lies that the enemy has said, you are not enough. You will never be enough. 
Your finance is about you. You don't need to share. There's never gonna be enough from the Lord. That your body is not beautiful. The lies that the truth is your sexuality is the most important thing to you, not obedience to the scripture. You have to take a shovel. You have to get physical. And you have to uproot that thing and get it out of there. Otherwise, it will sprout in different places. All of a sudden, you'll be 36 years old. And you'll, all of a sudden, you're, you're hanging out with your kids and that insecurity pops up from when you were a kid. Uproot the lies and plant the truth. So you have lies about your identity living in you. You have lies about comforts and conveniences. You have lies about consumerism and materialism. You have lies about sexuality and sex. You have lies about the things you allow into your home, the, the, the words, the, the images, the, the narratives on Netflix that are bombarding a culture in your mind that is, that is anti-Christ. But we just do it. Because we don't think that that really matters. It's just, it's, it, it, it's not that important. We have lies about money, lies about dating, lies about relationships. I can't believe the lies about purity we have in the church. Sex and everything else around that subject. And I won't, there's a lot of kids in here. I'm not gonna get details. But those of you who are not married, you have no right to do anything some of you can't kiss. That I would say that is beyond acceptable because of what kissing leads to in your relationship. Because of what that gift is designed for in the space that is given by God to cherish and nurture and power, to allow that power to connect you with intimacy, procreation, and, um, and, and, uh, and fun and pleasure. And so we have all sorts of lies that we're living and we need to uproot those lies and replace them with truth. I'm just, that's just the second thing. You guys good? Do you see how important this text is? It all starts with your yes and your no. Number three, what do we do to grow as mature disciples who live and speak truth? Resist affirming, distributing, or speaking anything that disturbs or distorts the truth. We have to eliminate our participation in spreading and speaking lies. Number four, Cultivate practices of truth-telling in your life, in your household, in your house churches. One of the things I did, um, we don't have like TV, like we have like, you know, Netflix and Disney Plus. So my kids, I remember we were watching the Lakers finals in 2020 at our friend's house. And uh, God bless the Lakers. Um, I think it was just unfair that they had to start a new season after such a long season, right? It shouldn't have been that way. It shouldn't have been that way. But so there we were watching the games. It was amazing. But this is the first time Ezra's really seeing commercials. What is this fascinating thing in between the show we're watching? Well, son, these are commercials. <laughs> it was so funny. He's like, I want to come watch the commercials. I'm like, you don't watch the game? Like, what's wrong with you? I kid you not. He became obsessed. And, but I noticed as we were watching these things, we had to, um, I had to like help him understand what was going on. And I realized I was training him as a disciple. I was giving him a framework to see what these advertisements are selling him, really. So this is what I was, I was like, oh, this is actually really good for us as a church to name the lie, right? This, what's the thing underneath the thing? So there's like this crazy space odyssey, like this adventurous guy is going down into the, he goes into outer space from the sea and it's just vibrant and all these different graphics and he's like, oh, that's amazing. Is that a movie? I'm like, no, they're selling you PlayStation. Or like, you know, Snoop Dogg was on the beach talking to some other rapper from like a, a banana phone and they're just going back and forth and it's on this beach and it's like this beautiful setting. He's like, oh, I want to go to that place. I'm like, no, they're selling you beer. <laughs> and so now it's like, I, I literally have been training him. Like, what are they selling you, Ezra? What are they selling you? Name the lie. Cultivate practices of truth telling. To see, like we, we actually, we did this in our house church. We, we sang the song, Jaira, You Are Enough from Maverick City Music. You guys know the song, Jaira? Jaira, you are enough. I'm killing it. Don't, don't edit that one. That's, one. That's good, that's good. Oh, I feel great now, thank you. Um, but after we were done singing, I was like, hey, we're singing a worship song. I, I brought all the kids in and they were all worshiping with us. I'm like, and it's hard to do this with kids, but it's like, hey, when we say, Jaira, you are enough, what are we saying? What is ultimately true? And they were saying, you know, like, 
um, I think it was Harlow who said, or, or Finn, he was like, um, uh, like, God is enough. And sometimes we, want, we believe that God's not enough. And so what we're singing right now is something to remind us that he actually is enough. And I said, isn't that interesting? Have there been moments in your lives where you felt like you're not enough or you didn't have enough? Yes, and we started talking about that. And so what can we do as a truth-telling community is to remind us that worship helps speak us and orient us to what's ultimately reality and true. That's why we come to worship, right? So we cultivate these practices um, the other thing that's really important in our culture and society right now is to remember, celebrate, and lament honestly history. This is so important, church, that in our cultural moment on both sides, history is losing its meaning by the people in power. And what you see, this is why I love the scripture, is it's the only ancient text that's critical of itself. The prophets are saying, hey, they, this king didn't do it right. They're, not, they're writing history saying they messed up then. They lamented that king did evil in the sight of the Lord. But this king, David, covered for all sorts of bad kings, and he created a covenant. So you don't whitewash, you don't get rid of things that were bad in history. You remember them and lament history as it was, and you celebrate and champion and, and, and remember history as it was when it was good. So if it's bad, we lament, and if it's good, we celebrate, but that's how we cultivate truth. And that's how we learn to live in truth. We don't just get rid of things or rewrite the founding. We don't just eliminate it and say it didn't happen. Let's get over it. We have to do both at the same time. If we don't remember history, we won't realize how bad things are right now. And if we reject that things are bad right now, we're probably looking at history with a bad lens. Truth-telling, cultivating practices of truth-telling require us to remember, honestly, celebrate, honestly and lament honestly what was historically true as a society and culture. Uh, this isn't about, I know it's hard to digest for some of you, probably because of your political ideologies. But according to scripture, this is something we have to navigate. And at the time of when communism took over Eastern Europe and they shut down Christianity and they, they killed people, they got rid of the leaders, they tortured them, they, um, they imprisoned them. One of the, the key elements that those resistant cells, families did was they taught history as it really was and they navigated the world and they raised up their kids to see evil and good. They said that this is evil and this is good. We don't do that anymore. We can't, that's oppressive. This is why truth is so important. And this is why there is a war against truth. If, if we can get people to think that what's wrong is right and what's right is wrong, then we don't have any center anymore. We have no basis of society. All that matters is the person telling you what's right and wrong. And we have to be resistant cells. We have to be disciples who can discern, no, this is what Jesus is doing. This is where he's moving. And we have to choose. The next one is to opt out of the crowd and choose to live in countercultural communities. The crowd, the mass of, of society is moving in a direction, and we as a church have to be remnant. We have to be resistant cells. We have to be, think about antibodies. We have to become these pathogens that are entered into society and bring out the best as salt and light. We have to bring truth where there's a lack of truth, where there's a post-truth, where there's alternative concepts, where there's ideologies opposing gospel. We have to come in and live differently. And how do we do that? Do we do that with picket signs? Do we do that with protests? Not always, and most of the time, no. We do that by setting up a better alternative. The greatest critique of the bad is the practice of the good. And so we as a church, guarding communities, house churches, digital communities, what we're trying to do is create a, such a vibrant life within us, there's no needs among us. That we can, be on diversity, we can be diverse and unified. We can be racially diverse, ethically diverse. Uh, we can have different languages spoken in our church. We can have socioeconomic differences, class differences. We can have all that. But we're all gathered under one family as one tribe, one community, under one baptism, one Lord, Jesus Christ. And it's here that that alternative community is birthed. And people on the outside, they don't need to hear our protest. They need to see our lives as the counter-protest to the way of the world. And they will say, I want that. I want, to, I want to be a part of this community. 
I don't understand what's going on. This is miraculous. How do you have all these people on different sides of the stage together unified? Jesus, his spirit, we lay it down. But this is gonna cost us everything. And I feel like this is one of those moments where you're like, oh, he's getting kind of crazy. I feel like, like the violin's playing as the Titanic's going down. And the violin is the church who's trying to ease it, ease the way with culture to make it a little more convenient for you as you go down with the ship. But there's some of us who are getting on lifeboats and getting kids some life jackets and getting some women life jackets and making sure there's no one left. And we're trying to get people on these things that will preserve our lives because this whole thing is going down and we need to be the counter-cultural movement. And it starts with you. Okay, live under the authority of Scripture. Number six, uh, probably the most offensive thing I could say is this. Live under the authority of Scripture. Does Scripture speak to your, how you handle your money? How you handle your dating relationship? How you deal with conflict? How you deal with difference? How you deal with politics? How you deal with your social media profile? How you deal with the envy, the greed, the selfish ambition? Is Scripture forming these decisions, these patterns, these habits in your life or something else? Live under the authority of Scripture. This is how we become mature disciples who live and speak truth. Lastly, daily examine questions. Um, You can get these online. But one of the things that I've started doing this week was ask questions, have I spoken any lies today? Have I exaggerated any stories? Have I omitted any information to make myself look better? I was thinking about writing up some questions about social media posts. Have I posted anything that exaggerates my self-worth? Because what we're doing is we're curating an image that we're trying to keep up, right? It's like, we want, to, we, want to, we want to be a little bit authentic so people can see we're vulnerable, but we also want to look really pretty, and we want to be doing some cool things, or we want to be doing not so, some cool things, but it has a, a meaningful moral story to it, right? It's exhausting. We need some daily exam. So these are the seven things, and that's all I got for you. I went, I went long, but it needed to go long. So I want you to be a disciple of Jesus. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, and you are committing to living and speaking truth, Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.